This is Audio QT, the podcast of QT Voices, the online magazine of the LGBTQ Studies Program at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to Audio QT. Carmen Chavez has very kindly allowed me to usurp her usual position as host. I am Joe Shu. I'm an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing here at UT. I'm also affiliated with the LGBTQ Studies Program and a member of the Center for Asian American Studies. Today, I will be guest hosting this episode for our special issue that I've also guest edited on transgender rhetorics. I'm very excited to have with me as a guest today, Rocky Lane who I've been wanting to meet for a while, so I love that we've had this opportunity. Rocky is a creative entrepreneur and advocate. He was raised and currently lives in Austin and has spent his life devoted to community and cause. He's a Black man of trans experience, a wellness professional, and a loving husband to his partner, Sarah. And together, they have a media and consulting company called Swirl Baby LLC. Rocky's resume includes a wide-ranging amount of experiences in health, wellness, entertainment, and entrepreneurship. He's a media creator, a creative consultant, an advocate, and a community engagement and inclusion specialist. His industry experience ranges from a certified nurse assistant to City of Austin paramedic to his current work as a wellness provider. His goal is to help create a thriving trans and gender diverse community. Rocky is the former board chair for Transgender Education Network of Texas. He's a City of Austin Public Safety Commissioner, a member of the HIV Planning Council, and a grassroots community organizer with Austin Black Pride, Black Trans Leadership of Austin, and UT's Population Health Community Strategy Team. I will also be sharing some links to Rocky's social media, as well as the webpage for Project Life Raft, his undertaking, um, so that you can go find them in the show notes. And with that, uh, let's get on to the show. Welcome to Audio QT. I'm your guest host, Joe Shu, and joining me today is Rocky Lane. Rocky, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. So uh, I'll go ahead and jump in. I've been looking forward to this opportunity to meet you, so I'm glad we got this you know, chance to connect. Since you're involved with so many organizations, I know I became familiar with your name because I keep seeing it all over the place, you know, on on Facebook, on all of the different trans and queer uh, groups and networks around Central Texas. I was wondering if you could um, talk to us about what you see as the connective thread in all that you do. You know, what is the driving vision of the world or set of values that pulls you to the projects that you choose? Thank you for the question. I think that as a leader, one of the things that uh, one of the through lines that keeps coming up and popping up is this concept that I believe that a lot of things are connected. It drives a lot of people in my life pretty to a place of annoyance sometimes. But I think that somewhere along the line, right? Uh, so I, uh, this com- this comes up later. But I, I grew up in Austin. I've been in Austin a long time. And one of the, I think, community values of Austin is kind of this everybody in, everybody work together, uh, no matter who you are kind of vibe. But over the last, you know, decade or so, I've seen this splintering of people uh, where if they don't see what they need in the space, in the community, then they kind of splinter off and do these pockets of care or pockets of um, 
support that I've always found so important to like a healthy ecosystem in Austin. So like the, the ice storm brought us Austin mutual aids, you know, like we could see how Austin mutual aid worked really well to bring different bodies together to kind of work through the ice storm before and mutual aid networks have popped up everywhere. And I think this like collective care model, you know, is probably like, like if I see a a group that I really love and I think that they are coming from a place of like community focus, uh, old, older Austin value. uh, And if I think that they're meeting a niche need that is still not seen by the larger system, these are some things that'll draw me in. Um, Like a lot of people, consider Austin kind of a place where innovation is done. So I think that that's the case in, in queer uh, organizations. And uh, we're some of the first organizations to introduce intersectional leadership. Like these are some things that I really love to see. And often if I see it, I will go and support it. We will go and support it as a, as a business. And then, you know, I would say the other thing is that a lot of times I think I choose things that are people of color focused because they're they're just uh there used to be a lot more people of color in town and it's growing again but often i think that that does hold a spirit of you know kind of like this ancestor spirit of you know a village um and it feels more more familial but not all the way (laughs) uh it's still very much business um but i do love that and that connectivity reminds me of something i lost from my own culture so often I'll kind of navigate into those spaces as well. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually a great segue into my next question, which is I first encountered you through Black Trans Leadership of Austin when you came and visited one of our UT Austin Zooms. And that, I believe, was founded in 2020 during mm-hmm. COVID-19. You were just talking about community care, mutual aid. Was that sort of the reason for this organization? How did it get started and how has its work maybe changed in the following years? Thank you. I, I forgot to tell you before we recorded that, you know, I don't, um, so I design a lot of leadership groups. Um mm-hmm. But as far as BTLA is concerned, I would be considered positioned as advisor, and that was purposefully. Um, So when I speak, I would like to also preface this by saying that I'm not um, the person that officially speaks for that particular group, Um, but I am a part of that group, and uh, and they like to do their own press. So um, what I'm going to say about this is kind of high level on why I thought it was necessary to have BTLA and then, you know, additional stuff. I would welcome everyone to go and check in with BTLA uh, for some of their messaging. But um, yes, COVID-19 spurred the idea to create a black trans group that worked together instead of individually. It was born out of a little bit of chaos at the beginning of the COVID-19 response where I was going into a lot of these food meetings, uh, food stability meetings, Um, and sustainability work. I was going into housing stuff and not a single person was mentioning trans people, which we knew when I was working with Tent and I was a board chair, we knew that me coming on as the first black chair would create some waves. And we weren't really sure why. And uh, now as I'm working with BTLA, I kind of see why. But but. Uh, COVID-19, what we were running into as we were, obviously, the data shows, uh, this city doesn't really like to pay, they pick they pick their data, but the data shows that the, the majority of youth in our 
communities uh, across Texas identify either as Katie BIPOC um, or some, you know, you know, they are people of color. And so what we were noticing is that a lot of people that were not people of color were getting all this help, right? They were able to navigate systems. They were able to do all these things. And I had noticed it since a couple of years ago when I started with Tint that in central Texas, it was almost like a resource desert, even though we were listed as a, a very liberal area. People are moving out of other areas to come here. But when you actually go and do something, let's say simple, like as an ice storm, we got to move people to a shelter. Are the shelters gendered bathrooms? Do they have gendered bathrooms? Do they have gendered uh, places for people to go shower? The question, the answer to that question in Austin, Texas today in 2022 is they have gendered restrooms. It is not safe for a lot of our community that is unhoused to be placed in those. And there has to be a middle party that helps to uh, wrap that person in community care and move them through certain resources. We know that our community also identifies sometimes as neurodivergent or they have trauma, which will give them a, a need, a higher need in, in areas of crisis. Um, but what we weren't seeing uh, in 2020 was any black trans people in visible leadership to what do what I call beacon, beacon people toward their correct resources. It's kind of like an everybody on me situation, right? When like today you might notice that, like you said, all the Facebook groups, there's probably people popping up on those Facebook groups. Hey, I don't have a house tonight. Hey, can somebody get me some diaper baby formula? Right. Um, but nobody was answering the trans black people of color that I was seeing pop up on mutual aid, whatever. It was kind of, you know, maybe a random person outside of the community here, no care strategy. Um, and if people pay attention to, I think history will show that most Black-led organizations kind of rose to an occasion over this last 18 months. Um, some of them that came out were not only BTLA, but also Austin Black Pride rose to quite a bit of um, some of the safety net work that needed to happen, including crisis response for rental assistance. Um, and BTLA was one of those that formed with them. What's in the Mirror formed around getting mental health. And BTLA kind of started to talk about things like, what about housing? What about sustainability for our people that move here or that have lived here? I work with a lot of people that were born in Austin um, and that are getting moved out. I've lost several leaders over the last 18 months who couldn't afford to stay here, but they still work remotely on the future they want to see here. And so that's kind of where BTLA's, like why I asked those three to come together. And those three are Tabitha Hamilton, Lice Milburn, and Naomi Wilson, who also came with me into. And uh, people don't remember Naomi. Naomi was arrested, <laughs> you know, several years ago, uh, protesting in Austin against um, the use of public school property for um, polit politeering, uh, po polit political like um, posturing. And Naomi was yelling at this guy being like, trans lives matter, trans lives matter, because they were saying all this, you know, really horrible stuff about our kids. And now we see why Naomi was so upset, right? Because now we're sitting in 2022, our kids can't play sports, right? There's so much going on. And Naomi was one of those first people that said, we got to do better for black trans people in central Texas, because Naomi's from here. So that was kind of like my first, like we call it canary, our first little tweet of like, oh, something's going on. When we watch Naomi get arrested by APD and, and then subsequently be asked like about, uh, I don't know how much we can say here, but, you know, about what kind of, you know, 
just just about really personal items uh, that you might expect when you're getting booked. Um, you know, we knew that there was something wrong in the system. So around then, we had already tried to talk to the the city. We always tried already tried to convince them to change policies, make hurting trans people a hate crime, give us better, um, you know, facilities and things in public services, and we weren't seeing anything. So then I went to these other three and I said, I think we need to form. I paid $25 to form us into a nonprofit that allows us to bring on some money. We are a 501c3, so we kind of operate in this weird grassroots area, which uh, built a huge amount of trust. And um, that's what I was hoping to accomplish with BTLA was creating a bridge of trust um, where people didn't have to go to a non-POC person to figure out what they needed. And... I think that that's a probably a pretty good reason why that got started uh, around COVID-19, but it has exploded into this community care web um, and more people coming out of the woodworks. I think we see more black people in the space now, more people of color in the space now uh, of leadership um, and people kind of like now seeing the path. If you want this to happen, you have to go and do this. So we went to the Public Safety Commission and we, we've spoke on the rights of trans people. We've gone everywhere we can, as you saw, um, to all the students mm-hmm. to tell them we are here. We don't want them to worry. And I, I think that the, it just kind of was born out of this general love and mutual respect of each other and seeing us all struggle. And when we started to work together, we started working on things like co-writing grants and things like that. We were able to, instead of turning people away and saying, sorry, we can't get you a hotel tonight. We have to figure out the voucher system <laughs> for the city. We just started taking care of it, right? Um, which I think is a, a, a healing mechanism for us too. Um, as people that grew up in this city, kind of like trying to f- make our own way and kind of like fit into the larger LGBT um, community. Uh, and I think we are all feeling like, oh, we shouldn't try to separate ourselves and only focus on black people. But everybody says that. And then you end up without without pe- black people with support. Right. So that, that's kind of the long and short of what I thought was important about that formation. Sure. Thank you. And and so for our listeners, since we were talking about directing folks to BTLA, that website is btla.squarespace.com. And I will put that in the show notes. I, I want to actually dive into the part about you being in Austin for a long time, since you've mentioned it several times now, and you said Austin is changing very rapidly. Demographics are changing. The affordability of housing is changing. So I'm curious if you can speak to you know what you've seen in terms of the transformation of Austin and how that's affected trans and queer communities specifically. Yeah. So I'll say that when I was three and I moved here, um, Austin was. I went to a predominantly black school, black and POC school. Went elementary. Um, I had black teachers. I had really didn't really notice a difference from moving from Houston where my mom went um, to like my grandmother took care of us for a while. We were kind of in between homes a lot. And I felt like it was a pretty diverse city, more diverse than even Houston that, you know, you can kind of, they used to call it a melting pot, you know, like uh, they used to like really be excited about calling Austin a melting pot. And I got, went through middle school, high school, and it stayed the same, right? Um, and then somewhere around when I went away to college and came back, I noticed, oh, wow, we have a really big tech boom um, that's happening. And that's bringing in people that are, for some reason, it, it's not bringing in a lot of people of color. And when I moved back after college, I started working as a paramedic. And I got to go and be um, 
you know, answering 911 calls and seeing kind of the state of one side of Austin, which used to be all of Austin, but they kind of started to slowly just only concentrate on certain sides, east side, down south, and then like started seeing the condos go up, right? Started seeing uh, old staples close down that we used to go hang out at. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe we're just getting fresh blood. But then it kind of converted to something different, kind of like they were trying to make Austin a little more uh, of a cultural center of entertainment and all this. South by Southwest came out, you know, Fantastic Fest, like our Fun Fest, all these things came out that made Austin like the number one place for people to move to. Um, and as that started happening, prices started to raise. And so, you know, things like me losing my first home, my first condo, um, things like not being able to keep up with like prices of parking. Like that, I think prices of parking went up like when I was a musician in town, like first. And I was like, oh dear, like I have to pay like 30 bucks to park for a few hours, <laughs> you know, like, like little things like that, that are like really unsustainable started happening. And like kind of like gay bars started closing, right? Like, cause there used to be, it didn't used to always be fourth street. It used to be like, um, fourth and eighth and like a couple of little spotted places up and down sixth street that were kind of like for us, <laughs> you know, but there were also really, um, affluent white communities that would usually own these spaces. So we would go in there, but it wasn't like it was a space for us. Right. And there wasn't an Austin Black Pride for a long time. There wasn't even an Austin Latin Pride, a Latina Pride or any of that. Um, and then apparently this whole time, Algo and Out Youth have been like around helping youth. And um, Algo really focuses on people of color, um, queer people of color. And they've been around for like 30 like 38 years, something I'm 39. I just turned 39, you know? So like they must've, I must've moved there the year that, you know, people at all go decided to form. And, and so it's not that it wasn't present, but I will tell you like going to school, there wasn't like a GSA that I, that I was like, could honestly say, Oh, I can go join this and talk about being queer. Uh, a lot of people that I knew growing up here were people that were not out um, publicly. They would talk to each other and amongst each other. A lot of us formed on things like basketball teams, right? Like, um, like just finding each other. And um, it wasn't until I went away to college that I really started to enjoy things like pride and <laughs> things like that, because I don't even remember when they started the pride parades um, in Austin. But I remember that it wasn't until I was a paramedic and I was walking with the ambulance that I got to go and actually experience pride. And I think that was from a place of, I felt safe, right? I felt like a guardian of the community. I felt like I could go out there and show, you know, like, Hey, like there's queer people that work in this organization. And that's kind of what it was like, but it was still very like pride. Um, what do they call it? Capitalism. Like it was like, you know, like, like Geico loves gays. You know, like, capitalism. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's what it is. And so, you know, it was that it was a thousand percent that, you know, um, uh, and that, I think everywhere was that right. And especially in the nineties. Uh, but we still didn't have any centering of, we didn't have a lot of people moving from like New York or Philly or other like queer centers into Austin. And then slowly I started to see them trickle. And a lot of times when we see that, it's because they see a need for our youth, our young people to have more of our community like descend. <laughs> and so uh, I would say over the last couple, like maybe 15 years or so, I've seen like a person move from Cali into this space and try to start, um, you know, a new bar or try to start an uh, Austin Black Pride was started by somebody who moved 
out of town, from out of town into this space, saw that there was no Black Pride in Texas, which is a brand. Black Pride is a brand. Um, and they were like, yeah, let's just start Austin Black Pride. And it exploded, right? Like more than we'd ever seen from Algo, which is kind of like more community focused, you know, care kits, that kind of stuff. And uh, case management. It was like people wanted to party. You know, they were for the first time they were able to walk into a bar, right? Drip drop, you know, it's all lesbians and like a bunch of queers, and they're just like, you know, booty dancing, and it felt very like almost like Houston and Dallas had descended on Austin. That's kind of and and in Austin we've had this push pull, right? There used to be like the relays. I don't know how long I can't remember how long you've been. You said you came back and forth, but there used to be Texas relays, right? And when black people used to descend on Austin, it used to be all this hubbub, right? Like, oh, we're gonna have so much crime, we're gonna have so much problems with these folks. And it always happened the same time as Rot Rally. And I'm like, how can you tell who's you know, like <laughs> like we just have a lot of people in town. You don't know if it's the black people or not. You have no idea, but people would just be so up in arms seeing all these black people come and then <laughs> people just kept doing it, right? Like like I think people saw that people were resistant and they just kept doing it so i slowly saw people like sheldon from black pride move into town uh and just make bank you know what i mean like you put up a you put up a ticket price for austin black pride right now like we are going to sell those tickets um even in the middle of a pandemic people were going you know it's like because um being in black community is so so important to folks and when we started talking to them about what they why they waited till then to start showing themselves they were like i honestly was culture shocked people just keep saying like i'm culture shocked here um you know uh i didn't even know there was queer people here because there's no rainbow flags flying you know we like just got our first rainbow crosswalk you know it's like austin is weirdly seedy about like like shady about what they want to explain uh about queer queer culture um and so you know i think what I'm seeing now is kind of this unapologetic queer POC, QTB, BIPOC community start to move here and uh, kind of make that money. Yeah, I appreciate that because you're sort of telling a story about the changing uh, and evolution of Austin that you don't hear as much. So much we're we're often talking about Silicon Valley and you know tech rage yeah. and stuff like that, and we don't talk about the evolution of the queer community and the arrival of more QTBOC LGBTQ folks. Yeah, I think a lot of people are happy to see it, you know, because they're kind of like they're in their 60s now. They're losing, you know, and they they think that they're the last ones that are going to live here. Uh, and then they see something like Black Pride pop up, you know, in the last couple of years. And they're just like, I don't know. I think a lot of people are like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Which is great. So much of what you do is about listening to the community, finding community, finding the need and, you know, working in community to address, to address that need. I know that you have Project Life Raft, which is a relatively new undertaking. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? Yes. So Project Life Raft is just a way for me to describe the things that my partner Sarah and I do as a business, as, a, as entrepreneur entities, as entertainer entities to do this coalition building informally. So uh, why I had to make this is because, as you've mentioned, I consult with most people that have something to do with specifically trans work, but like um, now it's turning into POC, cutie BIPOC work. Um, and that has a lot to do with uh, my position at Tint. But yeah, like what I was starting to realize is uh, this is this is brought up a lot. And I think it's important for young people to know something that's also happening in Texas is people are not being paid with actual American dollars. They're being paid digitally through things like gift carding. And so when I like when we talked about an honorarium, right, 
Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of times it'll be a $25 gift card. You got to get on digital and all this kind of stuff that that has changed. And it takes a lot to change it. Number one thing you have to do is start a business. Um, so what is unknown in white community that's LGB plus <clears throat> is that a lot of people, when they get all these requests for, can you come talk about inclusion? Can you talk about queer politics? Can you talk about this? Uh, we can give you a $25 art honorarium. You know, will that work? You know, and it's, you know, several hours of work. Most people have turned on to becoming consultants in the space. So they will list themselves as a consultant to build a business or build a project that allows them to take this money in. And then, you know, as, as far as Project Life Raft goes, we'll, we'll co-write grants with groups that don't normally work together. So the last grant that we wrote, which is very relevant to today, is the Winter Storm Kit, uh, Winter Storm Relief Grant. Um, we actually hit the same grant three times from three different organizations. Um, And that was because Project Life Raft alerted all three relevant organizations to the fact that winter storm money was coming. And that takes a lot of, like you said, listening to community, knowing who's ready, who's got the staff to to take something like that on, and making good good partnerships out of larger organizations and grassroots ones. And when we started doing that, we were able to raise the 30,000 that you're seeing go into the community today. Right. Like if people asked right now, uh, 18 months ago when we had a nice or a year ago when we had a nice storm, 18 months ago when COVID hit, you could not call a place and get a kit that would bring you, you know, warm food, warm food, water, um, clothing. You could not call anybody for that. You could maybe drop in the out youth. They might have a few things, but they wouldn't have some of the additions that were added. So when we saw that first and second and third crisis hit, we started um, helping. Project Life Raft would go and help uh, say, hey, we think that this group and this group. So it was Austin Black Pride, Embrace, and Out Youth. We think all three of you need to hit the same grant and then combine, once once you're awarded, combine that effort and work together to tell the community. Um, the other thing that Project Life Raft does is provide clarity of the systems as they develop. So every time a new thing is added, um, like uh, let's say Sex Workers Outreach Project is about to start talking about surveying people that do that have to do transactional sex work, people that have to um, that have to figure out their next steps over the next couple of years, uh, especially as everything's going digital and especially as COVID continues. Uh, And that kind of work doesn't get supported unless somebody physically goes and says, I see you're working on this. Let me connect you to, let's say, the UT research team, right? The UT research team is going to be able to get y'all all all the resources you need. um, So you don't have to pay for your own Zoom. You don't have to pay for your own XYZ, right? It's filling in those gaps. Yeah, wow. So we just touched on, you know, somewhere else that you have a foot in. You're sort of a jack of many trades. Uh, You are involved with UT's population health community strategy team. What's your role there and what are you working on? Now that is very new. And I will tell you that this is this is probably starting coming from the fact that I was because of my position at Tent and the work that Tent does at a regional and state and national level. Um, I'm one of the few visible Black trans people in the city, which means that if we don't have Black trans people at a table, a lot of us across the state get assigned times a billion things. So when you say like I'm in everything, this is the reason for it. Um, and it's really more to make sure that we're getting the messaging that we're hearing from the community all the way to the final decision making pro- process. And I think community strategy teams saw what we were doing with Project Life Raft, saw what I was doing with BTLA and all those groups, and they 
um, were asking me, and I was originally working at the medical school as a fake patient. So a lot of medical students may not know this, but you know the the medical school has been kind of sneaking in interesting type style patients that people may not be familiar with, like trans people, for a little bit. Uh, and um, and a lot of times people don't know they're working with a trans person. They don't, you know, and and we're kind of uh, secret shoppering them for like, are you asking pronouns and stuff like that. Uh, and I think that that work really interested them that I was already present around the medical school and community strategy team, I think is interested in bringing me forward. They only choose nine leaders from the community. And the one before me was Priscilla Hale, who is, was the executive director of Algo. So if you see all the things that Priscilla has done, (laughs) you know, with these positions, uh, I think that their hope is that we can we can use community strategy team to communicate what what we're missing. Um, like here's a good example. It's trying to create these informal coalition bodies the same way I just described, but through different leadership pillars. So let's say a black man, a black cis man has never talked to a black trans man before. Community strategy teams would give us an opportunity to be in the same room to or, uh, Zoom together and discuss things that align us, like prison reform. But without the community strategy team, you know, like thinking about that and it falls under health and wellness because it's a, it's a, a disparity, right? It's a, it's a health disparity in general. So we're looking at oppressions and we're looking at how we can kind of use what black community has learned to apply to trans community. And it's a lot of very, this, I've only been to three meetings so far. So what I hope it will be versus, you know, what it has been are two different things. But I think this is an attempt for them to bring this voice forward um, and start having larger, more robust conversations within not only the medical, uh, but use the medical system to influence all of UT's culture and all of the city's culture. As we know, UT has a, a way of doing that. <laughs> so I think that's why they wanted me on the CST. And I, so far it's been really, really enlightening. I've met a lot of really, really cool people, especially people of color. Just going to list that. I'm going to name that. That CST is a bunch of really incredible people of color who have held it down for, you know, uh, without really any resources whatsoever. And I think this was a, a, a last ditch effort for UT to stabilize us. Um, so that we can hold it down until COVID at least, you know, comes down a little so we can get to our people, right? (laughs) I I mean, that's what my guess is. I think they just want us there so they can stabilize us a little bit and uh, develop the ideas better. Sure. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And I really hope it goes in the direction that you're envisioning it. I want to take a moment and pause to just note that the role that you take that you've named in so many spaces as one of the few visible Black trans people to be the sort of structurally marginalized person who circulates through these spaces is both an act of vulnerability and also an act of care for our communities, right? I'm doing this because I know this conversation needs to be had because I know that I can engage and find common ground with these folks who might not otherwise have met, say, a Black trans person. But it's also really demanding, sometimes isolating work. So I'm wondering, how do you protect yourself in all of that? Thank you. My, the first few years of leadership were really tough. They say they, they have this saying, I don't know if you know this saying, but they say not all skin folk are kin folk. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, I made some mistakes early on thinking like, well, all I have to do is find other trans people <laughs> or, you know, all I have to do is find other black people and they'll protect me. Um, but 
it would this goes back to BCLA, this goes back to tent, this goes back to the fact that there are real people that I truly trust, that I consider close friends, that saw that I was trying to do something and they said yes to me. They said, We believe you, we'll we'll trust you, we'll follow you, and more than that, we'll be a community we'll be in community with you. And I, I'd like to say that especially during COVID and the isolation of that. I'm married. I, I have a wonderful partner. I have a beautiful life. And it can still feel quite isolating for us as a family to not have our community close, close, close by, especially when we're seeing trans attacks and stuff like that. And things like BTLA meeting once a week, even on Zoom, just to like work on things that we thought we wanted to see gave me a tethering sense of community. In 2017, Tariq Daniels, um, he held a, a, uh, this thing with BTEC and Tint and some, some of the leaders, trans leaders, and, um, about how we protect trans women from, from harm uh, in the next couple of years. And that was the first time that I was able to meet people like Natalie from House of the Poor and uh, just other, other people that I really respect. All of our elders came in that space and everybody was saying the same thing. You know, uh, that they were isolated, that they weren't sure where to turn, um, that they were deeply concerned that we don't have a strong enough community. Natalie turned around and started the very first trans pride that next year. Um, and it just has been shifting toward us actually caring for it. Like I, I, my own fa- my own family <laughs> hasn't cared for me the way that some of these these community members have kind of shown up, uh, you know, to hold space and. Um, it just it, it took away that that feeling that I'm doing this alone. And I think sometimes, especially when you talk about trauma and the trauma that our community as a whole experiences, what we're seeing in like certain spaces where people are like hyper individual and I'll do it all myself. I'll have all the ideas. I'll come up with all the ideas. I'll implement it myself. Um, it just spins people out of control and they eventually leave. But what has tethered me here is like people that I could sit there and talk to and they see it. They're looking at the same thing that I'm looking at. Um, and it's not just uh, that, that kind of thing is so, so important. That's why I talk about why community first approach is so important, right? Why housing first and building, you know, community within these homes and then resourcing the homes like we would see on, you know, ballroom culture and like on pose, you know, like why we need to continue to, um, lean into what makes us feel good naturally, right? I'm leading from a place of personal need. Um, and when I see other people that are also leading from a place of personal need, it makes me feel less like a burden. It makes me feel less like, um, I have to do it all alone. And it makes me feel like we are going to get somewhere eventually. Um, and there's also this marketing tactic, right? That once you slowly see one or two people start doing something, it raises all these other people into the questioning, right? It brought you here to go, why is this happening? <laughs> what, why are you doing all these things? Um, and it creates a buzz and a stir that I think is so important and um, gives me, a, makes me feel like I'm actually doing something, <laughs> you know, because sometimes you can't really be sure, uh, especially because, especially when you start working on just black or just POC stuff, it can be very isolating from the white communities. They don't love that language. They don't love feeling excluded. They're also traumatized. So it's just very difficult to find where you fit. Um, but uh, over time, I've built, I think, a really good network of people that I think trust and respect me. And you, you see them every day, I think. Um, you seem like you pay a lot of attention. And I think you see them every day. And, and slowly, you'll start to see less of me in these groups and more of them, right? And that's uh, um, Monica Roberts and other people uh, of that age group used to say 
that they really want to pass the torch faster, <laughs> right? We can't go 30 years on one leader. And, you know, so what does that look like? Um, and so this is what it looks like. I formed genuinely beautiful connections of solidarity. And it, I, I, think that, I think that's what ultimately helps me. Thank you for that beautiful lead in into my final question that I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, I, I know that it's very important. I believe it's very important that we highlight all of the structural damage that endangers trans people, especially right now. I also resist media narratives about trans people that are just about tragedy because it overlooks so much of the brilliance and the creativity and the genuine care that is part of trans community and trans survival. So on that note, uh, I wanted to ask you about trans care or trans joy. What's an aspect of trans communities in Texas that you've experienced and that really energizes you? Mm. You know, this is this is kind of what I'm known as, right? I'm the I'm the optimistic leadership, right? I'm the one that came in and said trans people are vibrant and joyous, and and um, we have the numbers here in Texas. There's a lot of us, and the joy I think that people sometimes forget that I think is important. I'm 39 years old. When I was a kid and I didn't want to wear dresses, and I had no language, and I had no advocate, uh, there was no joy. And that is not where we're at today. And I want people to really sit with that fact. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, but the fact that I didn't even know that there was a such thing as a Black trans person as a trans person, <laughs> uh, you know, and I grew up in Texas and I went to the same public schools, right? Uh, you know, yeah. like the joy is in the fact that this is our, this is our renaissance. This is our moment to truly show how we are so much more than a tragedy story. And that's where the joy, like I think the fountain of joy will always be that we are ultimately winning as we see our global community form, as we see, you know, uh, things that we never thought were possible. I think, you know, I never thought testosterone, <laughs> you know, would do what it's done. <laughs> you know, I'm dumbfounded, if I'm being quite honest, you know, like, like, you know, and I've studied science all my life, you know, um, the joy is in that we've removed the veil. The joy is in that we are pushing forward with actual truth. The joy is in that there is more of us that are ready to lead and have a better idea and are farther along than the people before us. And we are hop, skipping, jumping our way into um, a really, really vibrant and thriving future. Um, and of course, it will be difficult, but I definitely think that we have to remember that we have, we are, the, what they say, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. That's where the joy comes from, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I love that. I love that. We are we are living lives that we couldn't envision as children. We are embodying adults that we didn't know existed, which is yeah. beautiful. Like it's almost it's the closest to magic I can find, I can think of. You know, oh, like, trans like is definitely the closest <laughs> to magic I have ever experienced, <laughs> testosterone included. Yeah, right. Like I'm like, what? You know, like and people see me now. You know, like they'll they'll see me after several years and they'll just be like, I. I think I just wasn't ready. You know, like they're, they're just like, wow, I don't know that I was expecting it to look like this. And it's like, exactly. You know, imagine what we would uncover next. But yeah, thank you for these questions. Been, it's been very beautiful. Yeah, thank you for spending this time with us. Our guest today has been Rocky Lane. This has been such a good time. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 